Today we're speaking with, sorry, how do I pronounce this? We were saying Aquiles, is that correct? No, it's Achilles. Achilles. Oh, nice. Yes. I'm glad we That's cleared that up at the start. We started again. <laughs> we started again. Achilles, I like it. <laughs> Welcome to the Publisher Book Podcast, where we speak with authors from around the world to find out how they transform their dream into a published reality. Here's your host, Adam Ashton. I've just finished my conversation with Achilles Tan, author of the book, My Second Chance subtitled how i survived five head surgeries and lived to tell about it i don't want to spoil the story too much this book takes you on an absolute roller coaster of emotions and i'm sure achilles was feeling 10 times what i felt reading this book a hundred times a thousand times but even the book it was so well written that i i quite almost imagined myself being in that situation just to give you a little bit of an insight we talk about it a lot he was on vacation in December 2010, and as most people do on vacation, he went to visit his friend, and they went out on the town, had a few drinks, and it was just an absolute freak accident that he fell off his chair and hit his head. Now, at the time, this could happen to anyone, at the time, he thought nothing of it. He was more embarrassed than he was physically hurt. So he went about the rest of his holiday. He said, I'll go maybe to the doctor when I get back and get it checked out, but thought really nothing of it. And two weeks later, some funny things started happening. He started getting headaches. He felt a bit of pressure in his head. He said he was awake and the phone rang, but he didn't hear it. And there was sort of pockets of time he just doesn't remember happening at all. And one day a friend came over to his house and said, mate, your head's swollen up like a a pumpkin. And we better go to the doctor and do something about this. Basically, when they got to the doctor, the doctor said, you've had bleeding on the brain. It's just been slowly building up over over weeks and weeks. And you're lucky you came in. If it had been an extra day, you probably wouldn't have made it in at all. And he went on his first surgery to relieve the pressure. No one in the operating room thought he was going to survive that first one. And he went on a, a journey of five surgeries in total. So as I said, it takes you on a roller coaster. We talk about it a lot. I won't tell you too much more because Achilles will do a, a good job of, of taking you through his journey. Now towards the end, he talks a lot about the book writing process and he talks about his publisher, Black Card Books, and he talks about a boot camp. He went to a course, a writing course that taught him how to write this book and how he went about getting this book published. So I found the... Bootcamp. I found the company Black Card Books. They do courses all over the world. Uh, and yeah, Achilles sells it well. I won't try and sell it here. Check it out. I'll put a link in the description or if you go to publisherbookpodcast.com, there'll be a link there to check out their bootcamp. Uh, I'll check it out myself. Sounds like it's very worth going to. Without further ado, I think this has gone on long enough. Let's get into Achilles Tan, author of My Second Chance. Okay, fantastic. So today we're talking to Achilles Tan, the author of My Second Chance. I'll see if we get that on the screen there. Oh, thank you. And how I survived five head surgeries and lived to tell about it. So thanks for coming on, Achilles. You're welcome. Anytime. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Fantastic. Tell us a, a little bit about 
your life before 2010? What were you up to before 2010? Well, before 2010, I was actually working for the county. I'm a civil engineer by trade. And I uh, was doing plans inspections for the county. Mm -hmm. I mean, every time somebody broke ground to develop a subdivision or any development in Vegas, they would have to submit plans for approval. Uh And that was what I was doing. Yeah, fantastic. And um, towards the end of the year, you know how the housing bubble crashed, right? Yeah. It crashed that um, we were actually, I was part of... uh, uh, the group that got laid off, that were about to be laid off. Uh-huh. So when that happened, I decided to, uh, I said, well, you know, maybe I need to take a little break for a while and go on vacation. Yep, that's, that's always good. When, that's when I went to Florida to take a vacation, and um, the rest is uh, what happened. Yeah. And my uh, and so, just so, before just before we get into that story, so you're you're in Vegas. Are you still in Vegas? Yes, I still live here. Awesome. What's it like um, <laughs> to live in Vegas? I'm sorry. What's it like to live in Vegas? Have you been here yet? I have. I, I went about eighteen months ago, but only for a couple of days. That was enough for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it kind of grows on you. I mean, you know, it it like what everybody says. It's the entertainment capital of the world and it has its ups and downs it has its uh, you you just have to have a lot of control I mean because if you if you decide to let go you can lose everything here. <laughs> yeah, this, is, this is a very easy place to lose everything including yeah. you, a shirt off your back <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah exactly so, but everything is here we have the great I mean we have the casinos, we have great food, we have great entertainment, we have lots of places to visit. I mean, we we locals don't really go to the strip most of the uh-huh. time. We go elsewhere. Yeah. And there's, you'd be surprised at the number of places and things that you can do here in Vegas, other than just going to the casinos, you know? Yeah. There's quite sure. a bit. No, that sounds yes. awesome. I'll definitely have to. I actually had a mate who lived lived in Vegas for about six months, and yeah, he's he said he only went to the strip a couple of times. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I God, how long I've been here now? Two thousand and four. So it's been like twelve years. And yeah, I, wow. I think I only go to the strip whenever I have friends who come over and sure. visit because that's when you show them the strip. But yeah, if just by myself, I rarely, rarely go there. Yeah, for sure. Um, it's just not. It's you. You. You get tired of it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that's a quick way. Quick way yeah. to lose all your money mm-hmm. as well. <laughs> so, so, yeah. so you said you uh, you're working for the for the county, but you were part of that crew that got laid off, uh, and I'm sure that that period's always tough for anyone. You said you've obviously lost your your job, but obviously you lose all the things that come with that. So you said here you lost your health insurance coverage and almost a little bit of self-respect and sometimes some friends that you're working with and it obviously comes with a bit of financial instability as well you made, made mention of. Absolutely, absolutely. It's very unnerving when uh, a change like that happens to someone. I mean, I've been there firsthand and, and you know, 
you feel like a rug has been pulled from under mm-hmm. you and you, you no longer know what to do. You're at a loss. You, you panic. You, you know. So what I did was I, I really thought that I needed to step back and kind of reevaluate my options. But one of the things that I did first was I said, let, let me just take a little break and go on vacation, clear my mind mm. and, you know, see what happens. And that was when I went to Florida. Yep. Um, fortunately, at that time, you know, we have the COBRA program where when you get laid off from work, you can still be insured for the next six months by by the, the previous company that you work with, and it's called the Cobra. That's that's the program where uh-huh. you you pay a little bit less than the uh, commercial rate for insurance companies because somehow it's still related to your work. Mm-hmm. So when the accident happened, I actually still had coverage. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds extremely <laughs> lucky then. <laughs> oh yeah, I yeah. didn't. I, it was just unbelievable. If I didn't have that, I would have died already. Yeah. The procedures, the procedures that I went through, I mean, could have cost me millions, which I didn't have. Yeah. Oh no, absolutely not. Yeah. Well, we sort of danced around it a little bit. So what, what happened when you on your vacation in Florida? So you went to well, out with a friend, you know, out with a few friends one night. Every every first week of December, I first Saturday of December, I actually have a very a childhood friend back there who lives in Fort Lauderdale who owns an assisted living facility. It's a 34-bed facility for the elderly. Mm-hmm. That's his business, basically. He's made, he's done very well. And every first Saturday of December, he throws a Christmas party for them and their families. Mm-hmm. And I have made it kind of my... Uh, work vacation at the same time where I would go there and help. Mm-hmm. So we would help, I would help with organizing the party, serving food, entertaining the elderly folks and everything, just just to have fun at the same time, helping out. And then once the party's over, you know, we would spend some time bonding and, you know, just getting connected again because mm-hmm. we've been friends since... God, we were kids. We were in the elementary. So that's... I I do that every December. In fact, I was just there last year. And I... Every December, I've been doing that for like uh, 15 years now. Yeah, nice. Yeah, and one of the things that we did on that fateful day was after I arrived, we actually planned for the party. We started buying some supply stuff. And then in the evening, after we were done we would actually go out and hit the bars and just, you know, yeah, relax okay. and enjoy and, and, you know, have fun. Well, after all, it was a vacation, but then it, not really because it was also work at the same time. And that's the kind of thing that we do every year. Mm. So, Yeah, for sure. So you found yourselves uh, out a few drinks. You're on the vodka cranberries that night. Uh, mm-hmm. You had a few drinks. You said, you, <laughs> <laughs> you said you're a little kid in, in the candy store. There was plenty on, plenty going on around you, um, and just it seems like something just what you, you were just sitting on the chair and you just fell over. Yeah, actually, I was sitting on the bar stool. Yeah. Well, I won't deny it. I've had a little bit too much to drink, probably as we all, as we all do. Yeah. I, I was just drinking, and then my stool fell over, mm. and. I actually hit my head on the floor, mm. 
and everybody came to me and said, hey, you okay, you okay, um, do you want to go to the hospital? I, I really didn't feel anything when mm. that happened. Mm. I, you know, I, I felt normal. I mean, I probably lost consciousness for a little bit, but it didn't dawn on me that something critical had happened already. So what I did was I said, no, 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 no. I went back to drinking and I drank yeah. and, you know, still continued to party that yeah. night. Yeah, fair enough. And then party went well. My friend insisted the next day that, you know, why don't you go see a doctor? I said, nah, never mind. Forget it. I'll just wait until I get back to Vegas mm -hmm. and get myself checked because I was feeling all right. And uh, I came back to Vegas on December the 14th. And I was fine. I was still driving. I went back to work, did my Christmas shopping. My car broke down, took it to the shop. I had to rent another car so that I could do my errands until a day or two before Christmas when... I started feeling severe headaches. Mm -hmm. And I just thought, I really thought nothing of it. I just thought they were just regular headaches that I could, you know, uh, take care of by just drinking a leave or Tylenol and getting some sleep. And I got invitations to several Christmas dinners, which I said, nah, I think I'll stay home because I really wasn't feeling well. Yeah. And, what was unique from what I recall about those headaches was I started having chills. Mm. I, it was like I was freezing. Mm. So I was in bed. I covered myself with blankets and everything and just drank Tylenol thinking that it would just go away. And it wasn't until Christmas when my mom from back home was calling to greet me a Merry Christmas and I wasn't answering my phone. And that kind of went on for three days according to her and she was so alarmed that she started calling my friends to knock on my door mm. to because I lived alone. Uh -huh. So finally, like on the 26th, a friend of mine knocked on my door and I didn't even remember how I opened the door. And, I mean, uh, he said that when I opened the door, my head was already like uh, the size of a pumpkin. Oh, gosh. So, immediately, he uh, took me to the hospital, and I went through, you know, the regular checkup and diagnostics. They did a scan on my brain, and they found out that my brain had already shifted oh. by 10 millimeters to the right, which is something that my doctor said, you are so lucky because you waited for perhaps another 12, 24 hours, you would have been gone. Oh, gee. Yeah. So from that hospital, they took me to UMC. That's another hospital where there was a resident brain surgeon and immediately scheduled me for surgery. And um, they couldn't normally, in cases of um, hematoma, 
in not so severe cases, they could just drill through your skull and relieve the pressure. Uh-huh. In my case, they had to do a craniectomy. They had to remove a portion of my skull the size mm. of my palm. Oh. And <laughs> I talk about that in detail because the PA, the, his physician's assistant was telling me, do you know that your brain tried to escape from your head <laughs> when we your skull? And he said blood splattered all over because of the pressure that had built up in my head. Yeah. And so they tried to put it back and oh, hope for the best because nobody, nobody, not one person in that operating room thought I'd survive. Yeah. No, no one did. Yeah. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I felt compelled to share my story as well because I knew that what I went through was something extraordinary. Yeah. Something something that, I mean, it, it, to me it was really a miracle and, and to, to a lot of people it was. Mm. Because I was in a coma for seven days and, you know, when I woke up, half of my body was dead. I mean, my left eye was blind. I couldn't move my left hand. I couldn't move my left leg. I couldn't speak. I couldn't talk. I mean, I was vegetable. I was really yeah. a vegetable. Yeah. And one of the first things that I told my doctor, according to him, when I opened my eyes, my, my, my family doctor was there, and he said, after telling me what I just went through, my response to him was, I'm going to beat this. Nice. I'm going to beat this. So I was told that it would take at least six months, at the very least six months, for me to recover and regain my functions, my motor functions, how to walk, how to you know, move my hand, how to do anything and everything. Guess what? It turns out that after 30 days, my insurance company tried to kick me out of the hospital already oh. because by chance I was better. Oh, jeez. <laughs> yep. Even though they had not returned the bone flap, the bone that they took off my skull. So when I went home, I had a gaping head. Oh. It's like a basketball. You know, <laughs> if you imagine a basketball that's missing air. Oh, yeah. It's dead. Yeah. That's how my head back. Oh, gosh. You call, and, and you call it your, you your bone flap. <laughs> yeah. They, they, that's what they call it. They call it the bone flap. And normally <laughs> what happens is when, when they remove that bone from the head, my understanding, it was explained to me, that they would normally store that in your abdominal cavity to mm. keep the bone alive. Mm. But with me, it was unique because they didn't store it in my stomach. They stored it at a laboratory somewhere. I heard it was in Los Angeles because according to the doctors, I was too weak to sustain another operation uh-huh. when I went through my head trauma. Uh-huh. And that was probably one of the reasons why the bone got infected and did not bond with my skull when they put it back. Yeah. That's why they they had to open me five times. Yeah, well, that's it. You, you've, it's such <laughs> an um, 
incredible story already, and I wish it ended there, but there's so much. That was only the first one. That was only yeah, the that, first. Was only, that was only the first one. And, I mean, it's, it's pretty amazing how I went through all this practically by myself. I mean, my mm. sister and my aunt visited me from Texas, but they had their lives too. I mean, my sister mm. had her job. She's a nurse. And she's a family. My aunt had her own home health company. She's a nurse as well. And she had her own family. And they really couldn't stay with me in Vegas. Yeah. So I literally had to survive on my own. Yeah, absolutely. And what they did was they actually uh, cleaned my apartment very, very well because they were afraid that, you know, things might get bad and... I could get infected and everything, and they stuffed my refrigerator with TV dinners because I still, <laughs> remember, I still couldn't move my hand. So all I can do was get a frozen entree from the freezer and put it in the microwave, and that would be my lunch, breakfast, and dinner Yeah. for the long time. And whenever I had doctor's appointments, I literally relied on the kindness of friends and mm-hmm. You know, people around me to take me to the doctor, help me get groceries if I needed anything. It really was very eye-opening because, you know, it changes your outlook. I mean, the way you look at things and, and the things that you value and you realize that Material things are not that important after uh-huh. all. Relationships are, people are. And that's one of the lessons I learned, you know. It's how to love people and use things, not love things and use people. Yes, I like that a lot. So, a lot of things, though, that rule seems to be lost. Yeah. And... and forgotten or taken for granted mm. and that's really sad even you can literally see that in any situation in life if you just keep on remembering that that you know hey am i using a per, am i using people and loving material things or am i doing it the other way around and it will kind of pull you back and reorient you towards doing what is right and really I owe my survival to a lot, a lot of people friends, family even people I didn't know yeah. my doctors nurses everybody cared for me well that's a, obviously it's a horrible situation but it's a good lesson to learn for sure and Oh, that's, and that's the reason why I took time to actually write that, because that's part of uh, the lesson that I wanted to mm. share. Mm. Our relationships are, are important. Yeah, absolutely. How, I've got a few, a few questions off the back of that. You said straight away, you said, I'm going to beat this. Where did that, yeah. that such, I guess, confidence come from? Actually, I don't know. <laughs> I, 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 I don't know. Even my doctor was surprised because now he's still my family doctor. Even now, when I go for my regular checkup, and he has interns that he trains with him, 
he still tells them, this is the guy <laughs> who, who woke up and told me that he was going to beat his head drama. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it probably, if looking back, I, I really honestly don't know where that came from, but I just knew. Yeah. I just knew deep in my heart that the fact that I woke up was kind of a, a, a message from mm. the big guy up there that I'm not done yet. Yeah. I wasn't done yet. And I knew that he if he got me through it, that he will get me through it. You know, if he no. got me to wake up after that, wow, coma and everything, mm. that he will help me and he will bring me back and, and get over it. And quite frankly, I'm really looking at myself now. I, I can't even believe that I'm, I'm doing what I do. I'm still doing my real estate. I am working for IGT now. I live alone. I'm very independent. I'm okay. Yeah. So I, I, I may have lost everything, Adam. Mm. I may have lost everything that I had before, but... I I've gained a lot. I yeah, for sure. You so you talk about the big guy up there a little bit. You talk about that you uh, your faith sort of helped you through, but there's no uh, obviously you question it at, at times, and you you asked why me, but you've oh yeah yeah yeah. There was a time when I was recovering, and I I you know I was. Looking at losing everything. I mean, I, I was there. I, you know, I, I couldn't do anything. One, one classic example when that happened was when I knew that I, was, I had to look for a job. And I was sending resumes over the internet trying to apply for jobs. And remember, my head was like a dented ball <laughs> and I had to wear a helmet. And I would get responses to my resumes, to my applications, asking me to come for an interview. Uh-huh. And I would cry and cry and cry because how the hell do you expect to show up for an interview when I yeah. couldn't even drive in my head? I was like a cyborg wearing that <laughs> stupid egg helmet. <laughs> so I would, but to me, it was important that I do that because. I needed to prove to myself that I was still alive, that I was still viable, that yeah. I still can do something, you know? But only to realize that there was a limit to it, that that, uh-huh. that I really couldn't go for an interview because I would look funny, or, or, or how the hell would you, would a company, would someone hire you when, I mean, literally, you're, you're not even well yet, Yeah, you know? yeah. But I had to do it because, to me, I had to prove to myself that I was still worthy. I was still worth something. Mm. I mean, maybe I was physically impaired, but my brain was still intact, and which is the most surprising thing of all because a lot of people who go through what I went through usually lose something. Mm. You know, when your brain is touched, you either lose a faculty, you become blind or you become speech impaired or some function of your body is, you know, not normal anymore. In my situation, 
nothing like that happened. I mean, yeah, when I went first into therapy, the first exercise I had was this. Can you see my hand? Yeah. Was this, touching my thumb, touching all my fingers and my thumb. The only thing that I could do at first was this, yeah. the index and the middle finger. I couldn't reach the other two. Wow. And every day that I woke up, in the morning when I woke up and before I slept, I would just force myself to doing this, doing that, doing this, doing that, mm -hmm. until I finally get it all back. Mm -hmm. And even walking was a struggle because I had to drag my feet when I first started. Mm. But I forced myself into doing that. I forced myself into climbing upstairs just so I would feel better. Yeah. And it, it, it did help me. I mean, in a sense, my... Uh, my stubbornness and my, my perseverance weren't <laughs> So I was very stubborn. Yeah. And when I was told that, no, you can do this, you have to be careful, I would do it because yeah. I felt that I needed to do it. So I just kept doing what I felt I needed to do to survive. And thankfully I did. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. And it sounds like you, throughout the book you talk about you did work pretty hard through the rehab and the therapy to, to get everything back. Oh, trust me. It wasn't easy. Mm. And even even my therapists were kind of restraining me at times because they said, you're pushing yourself too hard. I said, I, needed to, I need to get out of this. I need to survive this. I need to get well from this because I, I knew I, I had to work. I live here by myself. I have mm -hmm. nobody to turn to. If I can work, if I can, you know, nobody will take care of me. I mean, my family's back home. I mean, my sister has her own life. My aunt has her own life, so... I needed I needed to do this. Mm. I just pushed myself to a point where I mean, you know. Mm. But it was it was a good thing. And that's also one of the things that I kind of write in the book that never to give up because you know, God will never give you problems you mm -hmm. you won't be able to go through. Yeah. No. I know that because you know there was a time when I would be running out of food and without, without the ability to drive and, and all that, I, you know, I would be there thinking about it and, and I would, there would be a knock on the door or there would be a call from a friend saying that, hey, do you need anything? I'm bringing you some fruits, I'm bringing you some stuff. Never in my wildest dreams. Yeah. That I, yeah, never, never, never. But you know what? That really, really happened. And they came at the most opportune time. Mm -hmm. You know, right when you needed it. It's amazing. So. It's an amazing story and amazing to come through after those, as you say, those five, yeah. um, five head surgeries and. Obviously, you're back to almost back to normal now. You, as you say, you didn't lose anything. Um, no, 
in yeah. terms of your um, mental capacity. That's so that's amazing. Yeah. I just want to just, uh, shift gears a little bit to talking about sure. the the book uh, the book itself. So you said you wanted mm-hmm. to to share this story, and you, I love a few of those lessons that the people versus the material things and the the never give up attitude. I, I definitely love those. In terms of writing the the book, was it? How did you find the the book writing process? How did you go about it? Actually, it was not that tough for me because of my background in college. Like I said, I have an engineering degree. Mm-hmm. And when I was in college, I was actually the editor-in-chief of our school paper, of our nice. university paper, which I a post that I held for two consecutive years. So I, I kind of knew how to write, you know? Yeah. So um, that was during the time of my recovery that I was getting depressed. I would call my mom every day and just, we would talk things out. And one of the things that she suggested actually was, she said, why don't you write, why don't you write your thoughts? Why don't you write Mm -hmm. a book about your experience? I said, no, 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 I'm not really interested. And, you know, she just continued to, you know, push me and, and, and encourage me to write and put all my thoughts in writing. I think one of my mom's concern was she was worried that I would be so depressed and I would be, you know, thinking of some some stuff that mm. were not healthy that yeah. she, she wanted me to write and she knew I could write. Yeah. So every, every day when she would call me, she said, you know, so have you written down anything, I mean, blah, 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 all that. And so finally, I just said, mm, maybe I should do that. Yeah. And at the same time, I had to go through my medical records periodically. Uh-huh. I have I have like a three-inch binder uh-huh. of all my medical records, which I have, yeah. you know, from the first admission to the last, I had that. So to understand my my ailment or to understand whatever happened to me and all the procedures that they did, I started gradually, you know, just looking at my records, reading the notes, reading the reports and all that. Mm-hmm. Until I finally said, hmm, this is interesting. I said, maybe I should really write a book because yeah. then, it, it, you know, so I did. And I, I came up with, I came up with my uh, rough draft with, with the, the manuscript actually. And I had it after six months of my accident, which really became a, 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 well, I wouldn't really say a distraction, but it was like, it's something that took my mind off my predicament. Yeah, for sure. So, so I, I, I kept writing and I, I finished it. And then the thing that, came to me that hit me was I said "Mm, now the next hard thing is how to get this published or how to share this and how to get this out and I really didn't know anything Mm -hmm. I mean I especially here in the US I didn't know anything I actually wrote and sent my manuscript to a couple of publishers and I got one or two responses but what I didn't like about the response was that number one I would lose ownership of the mm, book, and yeah. then they really weren't going to pay me anything yeah. um, except for a small royalty and everything. So I said, well, you know, I, 
maybe I should just wait if it happens, it happens. There again was kind of my belief in in the grand plan that God has for everyone. I mean, if it's meant to be, it's gonna, it's meant to be. If it's not, it's not. It's okay. never gonna, you know, not in your own time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, <clears throat> I read it in my manuscript, and then I got an ad on Facebook about the uh, Black Card Books of Canada. Mm-hmm. That they were doing a book writing workshop here in the U.S. They sent me an invite, and I said, hmm, it's free. So, it was over the weekend. Actually, it was three days. It started Friday night. The boot camp was uh, Friday night, Saturday, Sunday. Mm-hmm. By Sunday evening, it was done. So I attended. And they basically, Jerry Roberts and Jean Guy from Core, who is the uh, CEO and uh, chairman and president of Blackheart Books, were here. They did the seminar. And you know how it is. It's free up front, but it's always a sales pitch, of course, you know. Mm-hmm. At the end of the seminar, if you want to be part of the program, you have to pay this, you have to pay that, you have to pay this, you have to pay that. Basically, it was like a getting yourself published. It's a uh-huh. self-publishing type, but with a twist. Because, yeah, you will have to pay, but... The requirement was very minimum, but then again, the most important thing to me was you retain the rights to your book. Yeah, for sure. Do. So, for sure. and they were very upfront about it, and they also had their own program where they actually tell you uh, money is not in book sales; it's in the business that's generated by the book. Uh huh. Okay. So you can become a speaker, you can become a resource person where you can command speaking fees, or if you have a business, you can actually use that to advertise. But selling the book is not where you make money because the book is like, what, $2.50? Yeah. Cost. That's yeah. what they do. Yeah, exactly. So to make a long story short, when the seminar was over, I approached him and said, look, guys, I said, I have my manuscript ready. Yeah. And I said, if you are interested, I'd like to show it to you. And so I said, okay, um, what do you want me to do? And how much is it going to cost me? Well, the program is not cheap. Mm -hmm. But if you consider the services that they provide, uh, copyright, editing, cover design, layout, mm-hmm. multimedia marketing, everything and all that. That's mm. not cheap. Not sure. And when they told me the price, again, I said, oh my God, <laughs> what am I doing? How can I afford this? The fee up front was, they were asking at that time, it was 20 grand. That isn't, Black Card Books is still very much doing what they're doing. They're all over the world trying to promote uh, book writing seminars and everything they're all over. They go mm-hmm. to Australia, Europe, Thailand, Malaysia, even the Philippines, trying to do seminars like that. Mm-hmm. And the theme of their seminar, the title of their workshop is Publish a Book and Grow Rich. And they have had some very, very successful authors to do that. And they also show you ways to finance your book 
even before publishing it, where you can go to corporate entities who might be interested in the subject you're writing about and actually solicit sponsorships to pay for your publication. Yeah, nice. And they do that with they they do that with all the support. They support you. Yeah. You communicate via Skype. You communicate via Podio. Go back and forth. Go back and forth. Um, one of the very famous successes is um, Mary Beth Haynes, who is now the uh, kind of the head person for their uh, finance, and she started writing a book about pets, the mm-hmm. power of pets, how pets can actually help you go through your emotional trauma or something. It was picked up by um, um, the Pet Society of Canada, mm-hmm. and they actually bought all her books and made her a bestseller. Nice. Yes, so she is now doing well. But if you go to their website, uh, look at uh, look at Black Card Books of Canada. They, they have a lot of stories there, uh-huh. and they offer you tremendous, tremendous, tremendous support to get you through. So, to make a long story short, I didn't have the money. I didn't even know if I was able to raise it. Mm-hmm. But then again, somehow, Adam, things fall into place. Nice, yeah. Things fall <laughs> if into it's place. meant to be. I, yeah, and I, I can't even. When I look back at how I did it, I don't honestly know where I get the money. Mm-hmm. But I get my book published. <laughs> I mean, seriously. I mean, I'm not kidding you. So I did. And, and, and I had a couple of sponsors, friends who gave me a little bit here and there, here and there, until I was mm-hmm. able to raise the amount nice. to get the whole book done. Nice. So, again, it keeps going back to the theme that if you value people, people will value you and people will take care of you. Yeah, you know? nice. Yeah. And relationships are, are really, really important because, I mean, they're alive. They're, 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 they're not inanimate objects like, like jewelry or, or, or mm. whatever stuff, yeah. you know, material things. Yeah. So, yeah, nice. That's what happened. In terms of the the process, either the the writing or the publishing or the marketing, what was easy? What was hard? What was? Is there anything unexpected pop up? Oh, going through going through the editing process was a little tough. Yeah, because one of the things that you as an author Mm. forget to consider when you're writing a book is consistency. Uh-huh. And the editors really are, are a, a stickler for that. For sure. uh, they, they even, uh, just a classic example, uh, on the timelines, they question you. You like, like if your timeline doesn't add up, uh-huh. they, they, they really go through all that and actually question you and, and okay. make sure everything is followed that's one of the things that uh, it wasn't really that hard but we had to keep rewriting and, uh-huh. and and rewriting to make sure that everything was consistent other than the um payments that you have to come up with at certain periods of time <laughs> i mean 
I, I had fun. I actually had fun working with them. And one thing that I realized, one thing that I learned was, Blackheart Books, I thought, was a Canadian company. They are based in Canada. Everybody are Canadians. But you know what? Their staff, their support staff, the copywriters, the editors, the designers, they were all Filipinos from the Philippines. <laughs> and when we were introduced and I started, I was assigned my own, I was assigned my own um, product manager who took care of everything that I needed and who coordinated everything. She actually was from Cebu. Yeah. And I happened to speak the dialect. So they <laughs> communicated very well. And that went very well. When I went home two years ago, I actually went to see her and, and gave her a hug, gave her a copy of my yeah. book because oh, I awesome. said, without you, this wouldn't have happened. Awesome. So it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. It was an interesting journey. And I have recommended people since then. I have friends in Florida and elsewhere who have asked me how I did it. I said, you know, for you not to get led astray or for mm. you to not make any mistakes, I strongly, strongly recommend that you go with a publisher who knows what they're doing. Sure. And I mean, you know, it's not cheap. It's not cheap. But if, mm. if you want this, if you wanted to make it happen, um, go with somebody who knows. Because I've also wanted, at one point, entertain the thought of self-publishing. Mm-hmm. And I've heard and read a lot of horror stories with it <laughs> that kind of prevented me from doing that. Uh-huh. So I'm just, I'm just happy I did go with them. They, we are still in contact. They communicate with me all the time, send me some updates on what I can do and blah, 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 and all that. In fact, just yesterday, there was another author that, uh, who is going to be published, and they wanted me to endorse his book. Uh-huh. And they sent me a copy, I like the major points on his book, and wanted me to write my own uh, commentary as an endorsement to him, and I did. Yeah, nice. And it's, it's, the community is growing, and they're very, very supportive of your endeavors. And they go all around the world to have these seminars. Not only that, they also teach you how to market yourself. If you are into public speaking, they'll encourage you to do that. They have training programs for all that. Um, although, quite frankly, I haven't really been receptive to some of their ideas because I have a pretty busy life out here. I mean, I work yeah, and sure. I have my state career, so I, you know, I can't be traveling all over the country attending seminars, learning how to speak. Although at some point, maybe. Yeah, I mean, maybe if my book story. gets enough, yeah, it gets enough publicity that I can travel and be asked to talk and share my story, I'd be more than happy to do that. Yeah, so. for sure. So you mentioned that uh, one of your tips would be to work with someone who knows what they're doing. That's probably a good start. As a, I guess, as a yeah. final final question, do you have any other any other tips or or recommendations for aspiring authors, someone who's about to start the journey? There are, one of the things that I learned on that seminar that we did is there are basically two types of books that you can write, okay? One, they call it a passion book where you write about your passion, mm -hmm. which I guess my book is because mm -hmm. it's my passion, it's my story. The other one is a profit book where you hope to make a profit out of it. Uh -huh. So having said that, 
let's go back to what I said earlier, according to my publisher, that the book, the money on book writing is not on book sales. Uh-huh. Because books are cheap, you yeah. know, especially at this day and age. My book is still on Amazon. The electronic copy is like $1.99, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> but I still get royalties. Yeah. And, and at the $1.99, you get like, what, 30-something cents? Uh-huh. But, you know, when you have when you become a bestseller and, you know, millions buy your books, that counts, you know? Yeah, oh, for sure. But, so, think, really think hard about the subject that you care about and what you want to write about. Yeah. Because if, if it's a subject that is really close to your heart, like a classic example, I mean, like Mary Beth, she wrote The Power of Pets, how pets are very instrumental in in someone's emotional recovery, you know, in cases of tragedy and whatnot. And there are others out there that, you know, can inspire and can lead. And then the second thing is, think of your audience, who do you want to reach mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with your story and then cater to them and once you focus on those things your subject your audience writing becomes easy nice nice yeah writing becomes easy writing uh, you you set you set yourself up and start with that focus in mind you know yeah for sure so, that sounds good not lose do not lose sight of your focus. If your focus is, say, you know, a certain group of people, always keep them in mind. And if it's a certain subject, always keep them. So a lot of times, as I have seen, and by the way, I read a lot. Too. I like, I like spy novels. I don't know why that. Was, <laughs> but, <laughs> um, but I, I, it's amazing how plot after plot after plot is connected. You know, and uh, that's the beauty of it. That's the reason why books become bestseller is because they hold your audience captive. Mm -hmm. And have you ever heard of the saying that I can't put your book down? Mm. (laughs) Mm. Because once you start it, you can't put it down. You have to go finish it. And I I do that a lot. I mean, when I get a good book, I, I, I just... I don't care if it's 3 o'clock in the morning. I finish it, <laughs> finish it up. Awesome. Well, yeah. Achilles, thank you very much. That was some, some good tips there at the end. And again, amazing story. Five uh, five years later and you're still here. So that's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I really love meeting you guys. You know, I've, Kim and I are friends on Facebook. It's the first time <laughs> I met you. So... You know, but hey, more power to you, whatever it is you're trying to do. And and if ever you need me for anything, just give me a call. So uh, my apologies for the uh, technical difficulties. <laughs> no, don't mention it. We, we got there in the end. Yeah, I didn't mean to wait, to make you wait. So <laughs> no good, Achilles. Thank you very much. My second chance, well, definitely worth the read. Um, so yeah, thank you and and all the best. You're welcome. Thank you as well. And keep in touch, okay? Absolutely. Speak to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Publish a Book podcast. We hope you learned something along the way. 
For more interviews with authors from around the world, subscribe to the podcast or visit publishabookpodcast.com. Thank you.